children can be dismissed for children's church. The rest of you can turn your Bibles to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm excited to pick back up in Ephesians as we've been working our way through it, and especially over, uh, right before Christmas, we were looking at the church as God's home restoration project, in that sense, and, and what it means for the church to be the church uh, and he's talked about that, right? So he, he talked at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, he talked about the, the, the identity that we have in Christ, that we have um, this, uh, this amazing thing that we're, um, the, the blessings we have in Christ that we're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed. We, we know what God's plan is. He's, he's revealed himself and his plans to us. That we're also sealed by the Holy Spirit. That these are who we are in Christ, as Josiah put it in his testimony. It's not based on our works. It's based on who we are. Not, not the, 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 the we that we say we are, but the, the we that Christ says we are. This is who we are in Christ. We're chosen, we're adopted, we're redeemed. And Paul then prays that we would know the hope that we have, the riches that we have, the, 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 the glorious power that's at work in us. And he's been talking about especially the riches we have in Christ, in the church, um, in Ephesians chapter 2, which was, uh, again, Amelia read for us earlier. And so we're going to look at Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, and the big idea that is that the, the church is God's multifaceted, glorious church designed to show the world what it means to live in communion with God. In fact, in that sense, that, that God is, that the church is God's answer to racism and everything that goes with it. And so um, we're going to look at that in Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, because Paul starts off Ephesians chapter 3 this way. He's been talking about the church and the fact that it is God's dwelling place, that it is being made into God's dwelling place by the Spirit. And then he says, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops his thought, in a sense, and, and, and goes off on this basically 12-verse kind of... Uh, side thought, okay? Then he picks his, his, his thought up again in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's about to pray for them, but before he does, he's like, I didn't say enough about the church. And he's like, you don't realize the value that you have. He says, I was just ran across the, the largest buried treasure find in America, right? So in 2013, a couple who owned this property in the Sierra Nevadas was walking uh, their dog in the morning, and they spotted what appeared to be a rusted can. You know, one of those cans we all have, you know, green beans or whatever, right? But it was so old, it was rusted. And uh, for whatever reason, they decided to stop and pick it up. But it was it was kind of stuck in the ground, and it was, it was heavy. It wasn't just like, like, oh, it's got some, it's actually got green beans in it or something like that. It was more like, man, they put some lead in it or something like that. There's some, there's some weight to it, and so it took them a while to get it out. 
of the, the dirt and mud, but they got it out, they brought it home, they cleaned it off, and they, they, they looked inside, uh, and they saw gold coins inside. Now, what would you do if you found a can with gold coins inside? Uh, I'd go look for more, frankly, right? So that's what they did. They, they started to look around. They realized that there was a few cans around, like somebody had, had kind of marked a place where to kind of say, this is where the, the hoard is at. And they found, so there were empty cans around, but then there were eight cans full of gold pieces that, uh, that in today's, you know, it's not just about the, the value of the gold. That, that itself was a few thousand dollars. But because they were gold pieces mitted in the United States from between like 1847 to 1890, somewhere around there, uh, the, the, they, they sold for over $10 million, right? Because they were collector's items. And so uh, to this day, the couple has never revealed who they are or where they're at because they don't really want people to go looking for more cans on their property, right? But, uh, but there's this, that's, it, that's the largest buried treasure find in America, and it was found in 2013, so they didn't know what they had, the value they had. And that, in a sense, is what Paul is doing here by stopping in his thought. He's already talked about what the church is, and now he's, he, before he goes on, he stops and talks some more about it because he's like, you don't understand the value you have, and I want you to understand it. And so... Um, he's going to, let's just read what he says here and notice what he says about the value that we have in this church. So he's, again, he starts, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he, in a sense, he wants to say, why is that valuable in, a, in the church setting? And so he goes on to say, assuming, that you, and it goes off on this tangent, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. So this stewardship, or the word there is administration, that, that he's saying that, that God's grace is administering, it's, it's, it's happening in a different way. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I, was, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as has now been revealed to his holy prophets, apostles and prophets, by the Spirit. So he's saying, this, is, this isn't something that the, that the saints in the Old Testament knew, that other people could figure out for themselves or know through other ways. This is something that only happened after Christ came. It's been revealed as to who the church is now. This mystery, again, the, the word there for mystery is just the idea of it's, it's God's revelation. It's not a mystery in the sense that we have to go digging for it and find all the clues. It's, it's a mystery in the sense that it wasn't revealed until God said, this is what this is. Okay? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which is given to me by the working of his power. In me, 
are to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now remember Paul's story, right? He was a, a persecutor of the church. He was antagonistic to the church. He was, he was, he was seeking to go out and, and haul Christians off to jail, but God stepped in in his mercy and, and revealed himself, Jesus revealed himself on the road to Damascus and brought Paul to faith in him. So he took someone who was against the gospel, against the church, hated the church, and in his mercy, he brought Paul to forgiveness and faith. And then he also not only did that, but then he says, now I'm making you a minister, like someone to serve me by going and talking to, to people about what this means, right? Because he says, to me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So he, sa- he says here two main things that, that, that the church should know, see as valuable. First is that the Israel is not the church. This is something new. This is something different. And you're like, well, why is that valuable? Well, then he goes on to say, well, it, it's valuable because it, through the church, the manifold, the, the multifaceted glory of the wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So he's talking about the fact that the church, in some way, shows God's wisdom to the demonic powers that are, in a sense, controlling the earth and the, and the things that are going on in the world, it shows God's wisdom. So you, you ask the question, well, how, how does the church make known God's wisdom to demonic powers? What, what's going on there? So that's what I want to, want to kind of explore together by point number one is know what you show. So I'm going to, in a sense, I'm going to work backwards in the passage rather than forwards to help us see why it's important and then work backwards as to what is the importance that's so important in order that we can know what we show as the church and then live that out, embrace the joy that that is. So to, to know what we show, I'm going to go to back to Daniel chapter 2, okay? Daniel chapter 2, which Daniel chapter 2 is the story of the, the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Do you remember the, do you remember the story how uh, Daniel was captured uh, in Jerusalem, taken to Babylon, made part of the, 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 the servants of the King Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor, basically Nebuchadnezzar, and, and he was trained in the arts of, of wisdom and understanding, and God gave him the power to understand dreams. And so Nebuchadnezzar saw this dream, and uh, he didn't want to tell anyone his dream. He just wanted people to tell him what the dream was and what the meaning was because he wanted to make sure he wasn't tricked, right? 
Like, if someone tells you a dream, you can say, well, this is what it means. And you can be like, well, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. I don't know. But if someone can tell you the dream and tell you what it means, then you can be sure, right? And so he had this uh, understanding of the dream, but he wasn't telling anyone. And then he, and so Dan, God gave Daniel the, the knowledge of the dream, which was of this statue made of a head of gold and a chest of silver, thighs of iron, and then it went down to feet of iron and clay. And he, and he told Daniel that it was a symbol for the, the, the governments of the world, in a sense, until they were all wiped out and God's kingdom was restored. So these are the governments that are against God. They're opposed to God, which the demonic powers in that sense use and control. And at the end of those, at the bottom of those are, it says, feet of iron and clay. Feet of iron and clay. And the meaning of those, Daniel tells to Nebuchadnezzar. He says this, As you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as, sorry, I've got the, and as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. So he's saying, it's got some strength, but also got some weaknesses to it. Why is that? And he goes on to explain in the next verse. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as the iron does not mix with the clay. So he's, he, he's not saying, some people have interpreted this to mean that you should never have mixed marriages. But that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that mixed marriages are wrong. He's saying that peoples will, they will try to create unity through mixed marriages, through just saying, hey, we're all one together. But it won't work. That's what he's saying. He's saying this, this end kingdom will try to bring everyone together, but in the end, it will fall apart. Now, how does that play out? Well, obviously, the demonic powers in that sense are tr both trying to create some kind of unity, but also control how that works. Remember, Satan's, one of Satan's key strategies, right, is to conquer by division. And, you know, one of the greatest things we argue over, how to create unity, <laughs> Right? We look around at the world today, the news, and, and, and there's a lot of arguments about how to create unity. Like, we have different ideas that are out there. In fact, in America itself has often been described as a melting pot, right? That idea that we're, we're kind of melting together and creating this new humanity that's all about just mixing together. Daniel 2 here seems to indicate that's not going to work on behalf of of the, the demonic powers. There's, there's a, probably a prevalent idea out there about how to create unity. It's sometimes talked about as critical race theory in today's world. And there, the, racism is a, is a huge problem in our world, right? I mean, that's one of the reasons why we're divided is because of the hatred between peoples, whether it's over skin color or over background or over country of origin. There's, there's all this hatred between peoples. And one of the ways that that 
that seeks to unite people, actually, is through critical race theory. That is, they, they want to expose the racism that's out there and seek to correct it. And that's not a bad thing. There's a, a good desire to expose racism and to say, hey, this is wrong, this is bad, we should get rid of it. Christians should agree with that. But they divide group, different peoples up into oppressor and oppressed statuses. So you have basically try to create two groups of people, those who are oppressed and those who are oppressing. And there is oppression, we're not disagreeing with that, but, but here's what happens when you divide oppressor and oppressor up into into thing. Then they add this, in this idea of what they call intersectionality. That is the idea that it, the more you're oppressed, the more power you should have in society and the more you should be listened to because you know what's best because you've been oppressed the most. And there is a sense in which if you've been oppressed, you've learned some things. But the problem is, is that once you create that idea that oppression is the problem and you raise someone else up to stop the oppression, human nature says they become the oppressor. This is what happens repeatedly. In fact, um, one, of my favorites, one of my favorite authors is Charles Dickens. He was a, a, a British author who wrote during the 1800s and he had experienced oppression. He was very sensitive to a lot of the, the things that were going on in, in the industrialization of society at the time. And he was against a lot of things. He wrote a lot of stories. One of, one of my favorite stories of, of his is, is called Little Dorrit. It's, it's based off, this, off of what was happening in Britain was if you got into debt, you couldn't work to pay off your debt you basically went to prison because you were in debt. In fact, Charles Dickens' family himself had to go. He didn't go to prison, but his family actually went to prison because his father was in debt until it got paid off. And uh, through a family heir, a legacy kind of thing. And uh, it's a great story, and it shows a lot of true things. But one of the things that Charles Dickens in his story is he has this family that has been in, in, in debtor's prison for years and they finally find this huge, they find out that he's the heir to this huge fortune that, that nobody knew about. It was, they were trying to find the heir, trying to find the heir. They couldn't find the heir, and they finally figured out that it was this guy in prison, in debtor's prison. And he gets the money. He gets out of prison. And what happens is the story, in the story is, is that after he gets out of prison, and it, even the person who found out that he was supposed to be the, the heir, the one to receive all this fortune and inheritance. Since he wasn't rich himself, he's like, I can't, I'm not going to associate with any of my life in the past. I'm, I'm not going to, to hang out with any of those people that I loved and appreciated before. I'm going to, to show off the wealth I have and to use the wealth I have to, to show off the status that I now have in society. And, and the point, he has one of the characters in the story say at, at one point, I wish we never found out <laughs> that we were rich because at least we loved each other while we were debtor's prison. But now we not only hate each other, we hate everyone around us. 
because we're always trying to prove our status. And, and that's the thing with human nature, right? Is, is yes, in a sense, there's always going to be an oppressor. No matter who you put in, no matter how much, the, how much they've been oppressed in the past, they don't care. Once they get the power and status and wealth, they turn on those who they should be grateful for. You say, well, what hope is there then? If that's the story of human nature, what hope is there? Well, the point is, is that we don't depend on our human nature to find joy and peace and love and unity. We find it through what God has done for us. And that's the point here that he is making, is that the church is something new in God's plan, something that God is introducing to show off to the world a different way. And he does it by doing something unexpected. He's, he's saying, look, the church is in Israel, first and foremost. You'd think, if you were in Israel, you'd think, okay, God's introduced his plan. We know how redemption through the Messiah. Everyone should just become a Jew, right? That's what the Jews expected. They thought the Messiah has come. Everyone should just become a Jew. There's, there's the way to salvation. And yet God doesn't do that. He's not like, okay, Jews, now go take over the world and make all the world Jews, they'll all trust in Christ and they'll be okay. And, well, I'll save the world. We'll have unity that way. He does, he does not do that. And that is Paul's exact point in this passage, okay? Paul's point is this is something new. This is not God's program from, from before with Moses and David. It's, it's built on that, but it's something new. Notice again how he emphasizes it, right? He says, which was not made known, okay? <laughs> not revealed. The Old Testament prophets didn't get it. They, they knew the Gentiles were going to come in. We see that in the prophets, but... This is not, but how they come in is new. It's not made known to the sons of men in other generations and has, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So we're talking about the apostles and the New Testament prophets in Acts and other, uh, in subsequent times that came in, okay? We're not talking about Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah. This is since Christ. Okay? And what is this made new thing? It says the mystery is that the Gentiles are, he uses singular words, but they have to be translated into multiple words in English. The, the, the word is just fellow heirs. It's a single word in Greek. But it just means heirs joined together. They're with each other, co-heirs. Okay? And then the same, members of the same body, co-members. And partakers, or part, can be translated partners of the promise. So this is something new. It's not everyone become Jews and then you're, you're part of the, you're, you're saved. You're, you're in God's 
the, 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 the group that God is pleased with. It's no. Jews, Gentiles, you don't lose your status with your, with your background, your nationality, what you have. You're now fellow heirs. You have the same inheritance. You're part of the same body. And you're partners. Now, this is, does not mean that another way that you could try to solve this is to say, well, we just love everyone. It's just everyone's okay, everyone's good. Some churches try to go that route and say, everyone's going to be saved. No, he's saying there's a certain body. You have to go to Christ. You have to be made new to be part of this body. But that body is fellow heirs. We have the same inheritance, Jew, Gentile. Gentile, if you're, from, if you're from, from Africa or whether you're from Europe, we have the same inheritance. We're together. We have the same inheritance. And not only that, we're part of the same body. Do you see the difference? Let's put it this way. He didn't say co-siblings, right? You ever, you ever had a sibling? You're part of the same family, Right? Some of you raised their hands. I got six of them. I don't know what I do with all these siblings that I have. When you have siblings, you're part of the same family, but there's a certain level of competition between siblings, right? There just is. You're like, I'm trying to prove something here. We might be part of the same family, but I got something to prove. He doesn't say we're, co- we're siblings together, Jews and Gentiles as part of God's family. Because if he did that, then inherently we're going to have a little bit of competition, like who's the favorite child, right? I mean, we're back to Joseph and his brothers again, right? No, he says we're part of the same body, the same person in that sense. That's what he said that in Ephesians chapter 2. We're one new man in Christ, when you're part of the same body, then you, you care about yourself, even as you care about yourself. Do you get, get what I'm saying here? This is the church. He uses the word partners. And what's the fascinating thing is, I'm not sure that Charles Dickens was saved, but at the end of the story in Little Dorrit, he, he talks about how this one guy who had, the guy who had actually exposed the fact that this family had an inheritance, got an inheritance, and then they just, they just walked away from him, or at least the, the dad said, you can't have anything to do with this guy. And, and uh, he had started a business himself. He didn't have a lot of money, but he had started a business with a partner, and uh, his partner had gone to Russia to, to build the business up, and he had tried to keep the factory going, and, and it, it, therefore it invested it with this guy who was supposed to make everybody millions, you know. And it turned out the guy was a fraud, kind of the whole pyramid scheme, one of the first original pyramid schemes that Charles Diskin refers to. And, uh, and th- everybody that invested in this pyramid scheme lost everything, right? So here, he's supposed to care for the business, and he loses everything, and he's now in debtor's prison himself. The partner comes back, and he's like, I'm sorry, you shouldn't be in desert prison. I'll stay in desert prison because I made the mistakes. I, I, I messed up. It was my fault. And in the story in Little Dorrit, the partner says, no, we're partners. You know what? You lost a lot of money here, but I made a ton of money in Russia. <laughs> They're using all of our stuff in Russia. 
So we're good. We're partners. What happens to one happens to both. That's what partners do. And so that's the same idea of the body. What happens to my hand happens to me. What happens to my leg happens to me. We're, We're in the same body. And this is what the church is. We are one body in Christ. Members together, co-heirs, partners of the promise in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we are God's answer, God's wisdom, in that sense, to the powers and principalities in heavenly places that seek to control the world and, and, and manipulate the world to their own purposes to divide and conquer and ruin us with death. They say, how is it possible for these people to live together? They hate each other. There's so much, think of the Palestinian-Jewish divide itself. There's so much history there and so much hatred and so, much, so, many, so many issues that you'd have to solve to bring them together. You can't do it, God. And God says, oh, yes, I can. Watch me. And he says here, in that sense, he says, Paul saying, look at me. I hated the gospel. I hated Christ. I hated the church. But I've been given grace. And I've been given the opportunity to to share that grace, to administer that grace. The people who hate the gospel as well, who hate me as well. Because this is what God's grace is about. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So not only should we know what we show, but also we should embrace the joy of the new us. We should embrace the joy of the new us. What am I saying here? Well, because this is true, because we're now one body in Christ, this is why we're against racism. Because to hurt one is to hurt me. We love justice and we love mercy. We notice people that are on the fringe, that people push to the sides, that people don't want to listen to. Why? Because we're members of the same body. Those people who society says are unimportant, we say are important. The people that society says, we don't want to listen to you. You're You're not valuable to us getting where we want to go. We say, no, they're part, they're made in God's image. They're part of the of of who God wants to love. But how is that possible? And here's Paul gives us just a glimpse into this, but, it's, but then you're going to see in some ways how from this point, then he ends the book talking about spiritual warfare, okay? But in some ways, it's not just Ephesians 6 that's talking about spiritual warfare. Really, he's talking about spiritual warfare from now on, okay? He's like, the things you do to be part of the church is it. And he's, he says this phrase at the end of the passage, but it's actually key to his thought. Verse 13, so I ask you to not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. 
And here's really, in that sense, the key to the understanding, okay? Think of the body, right? When, when one body, part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts, right? If I put my hand on, I did this the other day. <laughs> Amy had left something on the stove hot, and I didn't realize it was hot, and I grabbed it with my bare hand. And immediately I'm like, right? right? Because, because my hand felt it, and I'm like, no, I want no part of this. Fortunately, I got it off fast enough, it wasn't that hot, that I didn't burn myself, but it was close, Right? The body knows to, to say, hey, if one part of the body hurts, I'm, the whole body's going to hurt. This is bad. But the imagery of the body that he's talking about here is, is not exactly that. It's more like most of us, kind of, the older we get, the, the more we experience in January. When we say to ourselves, I'm, I'm going to whip my body back into shape, right? I... I had Halloween, and I ate some of my kids' candy. I had Thanksgiving, and I had pumpkin pie. I had Christmas, and I just enjoyed myself. But now I need to get back in shape, right? And, and so in January, you start off, and you start working your body. And the muscles ache, and the ligaments groan. Why? Because... It's not like you're destroying your body. You're actually building your body back up. You gave it a break for a couple of months, but actually your body needs to function well. It needs exercise. It needs a little pain, a little suffering. Why? Because it gets stronger through that pain. And that's the analogy here, because he goes into it a little bit. When you get into Ephesians 4, 11, 11 and following, he's going to get into it more, Okay. But the analogy here is this exact analogy when it talks about my, my suffering, which is your glory. His point is this. When I suffer, it benefits you. It's your glory. And this is the mindset that really defeats racism, okay? This is the mindset. It's not just, well, we got to forgive everything in the past and treat everyone equally, it's the mindset that says, when I suffer, it's for their glory, their good. I'm willing to go through suffering to benefit those people that other people hate because God loves them. You say, is, is this, no, let me give you a couple other passages that talk about this. Colossians 1, 24, Paul's saying this to the Colossians. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In my, in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. He's like, there's a suffering that takes place to benefit the body. 2 Corinthians 1, for we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when, we, when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also share in our comfort. Do you see, see this analogy here of the body? He's saying, when, when the body suffers, it's for the benefit of the body. It's for the glory of the body. To say, because, because when you get back in shape, the body enjoys it. And not only enjoys it, but it looks good too, right? 
Paul to Timothy, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This mindset of I'm going to embrace the new us, and I'm not just going to embrace the new us when it feels good. I'm going to embrace the new us when, it, when, it, when I have to suffer a little, because it, when I suffer a little bit, it benefits the body, it glorifies the body. The manifold wisdom of God, Augustine, a North African, gets saved and suffers so the church in Italy, which was getting off track, could be put back on track. Martin Luther, a German, suffered so that the church and the people in other places of Europe, especially England, could be benefited and know the gospel. William Tyndale, an Englishman, suffered. Why? So that the Bible could get translated into English so that English-speaking people all over the world, especially then in America, people fleeing persecution could have the Bible in their own language. David Brainerd, one of those people who had fled persecution went to the American Indians to share the gospel and suffered and died. John Wesley reached out to slaves in his own country in order that they might know the gospel. George Lyle, a, a, a freed slave, went to Jamaica to share with current slaves the glory of the gospel. George Mueller went from Prussia to reach Jews in England and ran an orphanage. James Hudson Taylor went to China to help Chinese know the gospel. Abdul Rahman, in, in, in today's world, he was an Afghan who was forced to go to Italy by Muslims and is sharing the gospel once again in Italy. The church has always viewed suffering for the sake of the body as to our glory. And if we lose that, we lose the church. This is what the church does. It views itself as one body in Christ, partners in the gospel. And so what I'm saying is if a young black man experiences racism and yet says, even from Christians and yet says, I'm going to follow Christ, I'm going to love the church, even though I've experienced racism. That's to the church's glory, right? Because the church is not about ourselves. We're not like, look how great we are. What we're saying as the church is, we are not great. Christ is great. We proclaim him crucified on our behalf. He's the one who died for us. He's the one who rose again for us. So it's not about us. It's about him. And the more we can show that, the more we can live that out, the more that we can proclaim that, the more glory we give to Christ. And therefore, as we suffer and yet suffer on behalf of the church, we bring glory to the church and to each other. You know, just a quick side note here. I had a family in the church, passed away this year. Uh, Wanda Wadaf was 
uh, Merle's wife, and they, they wanted us to be a church that was about living this out. And th- they, they have given us a gift of $30,000 to do missions trips so that we can get out there and, in a sense, suffer on behalf of the gospel together, right? Because there's more people that need to hear. There's more people that need to know. And we're, we're talking with guys, obviously COVID has slowed us now. I was talking to John Boyd on Friday, or Thursday, just saying, hey, what does it look like for mission strip? He's like, yeah, COVID right now is kind of shutting that down. There's no possibilities. But eventually, we're going to get back and, and be able to go places and, and together, and together, in a sense, suffer on behalf of Colombians and suffer on behalf of the Togolese and suffer on behalf of, of other peoples around the world. Why? Because it's to their glory. Because what we're saying is God loves them enough that we are willing to suffer. We are willing to, to work. We are willing to love. When you reach out to your neighbor and say, I'm, I'm willing to love you, because I think you could be a part of the church, it's to their glory if you have to go through a, little, a few hard things. Why? Because God loved them enough to send Christ to die for them. Can I just make one comment here in, in this mix here? The danger here is judging others' self-sacrifice, right? Remember Peter and John, right? Jesus tells Peter in John 21, you're going go to you're gonna go to the cross. You're going to be martyred for my sake. And he, he turns around and he's like, well, what about John? What about this guy? What's he going to do? And he's like, what do you care? <laughs> what do you care about that? There's a danger here, right, of of when you're suffering and you're self-sacrificing, you're serving Christ, is to look around and say, well, who's not doing it? You know what I mean? Who's not suffering? But the point really is, is that we're all suffering. If we're believers in Christ and we're seeking to love others, we're all suffering in some way. And that's to the church's glory as a whole. You know, one of the greatest things you can do is come alongside of people and, and, and seek to, to love them and encourage them and build them up. Why? Because they are suffering for Christ in some way, if they're, if they're a believer. They need your encouragement. They don't need, to be, need your comparison. They don't need your competition, like, okay, who's suffering more? You know, we're not siblings. We're co-heirs, part of the same body. And so we love one another. We stretch ourselves for one another. And I'm speaking to a body that, in my opinion, knows how to suffer well. We have suffered. We do suffer to love others, to reach out to them. What I'm trying to tell you is, it's worth it. (laughs) There is a glory that only comes at the end of the ages when we stand before Christ, our King of Kings. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what Paul says, right, in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We get saved and we rejoice in the hope that we have, right, in the forgiveness we have. But he goes on, he says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces not perfection here, but hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. 
We have a hope of Christ coming again. And that is worth the sufferings we go through because we get to see the glory of Christ and we get to see the glory of the church finally, fully displayed. So how is your hope muscle doing right now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Maybe you're like me and you've been working out with your wife and the muscles ache a little bit. But I'm not talking about your physical muscle. I'm talking about your hope muscle. The muscle that says, man, I'm suffering a little bit. Man, this is hard. That means your hope muscle is building. <laughs> it's growing. It's getting stronger. And not only that, it's a hope in the glory of Christ and the glory of the church. When you look around and you say, who am I suffering for? Why is this worth it? As we like to say here, who's your one? Who's one person you're reaching out to to say, this is worth it. You need to be part of this. This is awesome to know the hope that we have in Christ. I realize there's some barriers between us. I realize there's some things we don't see eye to eye on, but there's something that's worth you hearing this from me. This is that's worth me loving you right now. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. Again, we're back to the parable of the hidden treasure that Jesus told, right? About the man who found the treasure hidden in the field. And for the joy of finding that treasure, he went and sold all that he had to buy that field. Where is your joy this year in 2022? Where is your hope? I realize you're suffering. I realize it isn't easy. I realize you wake up with questions and hurts and problems and things that overwhelm you. That's okay. We have hope that even our sufferings produce glory. And not just glory for ourselves, but glory for those Christ loves. Because we are the church. Know that. Live that out. The devil can never touch it and can never take it away because Christ has won the victory for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the joy that we have in this treasure called the church. It's not perfect. It's messed up quite a few times. And yet, in its suffering, it produces glory beyond all comparison. As Paul put it, we suffer now, but we are going to experience a glory beyond all comparison when you return. Help us to remember that. Help us to embrace that. Help us to see 
the riches that we have in Christ in the church and live out the joy that we have. In your son's name we pray. Amen.